0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you send your Spirit now on this place, and fill, it, fill this place and fill us, so that what is spoken and what is heard might reveal to us the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. So, odds are, there's somebody here who it's your first time at St. Paul's today, or maybe your first time in an Anglican church today, or maybe your first time in any church at all. And let me tell you, my friend, you have picked a heck of a day to visit, what with the walking and the waving of palms. And you would be right in wondering, what on earth is going on because Palm Sunday is weird And I will tell you something. There are people around you who have been going to church a long time who secretly have all the same questions as you. So what's going on, I'm going to tell you. Palm Sunday commemorates the day about 2,000 years ago when Jesus of Nazareth entered the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And it's called Palm Sunday because the crowds around him, his followers and his friends, pulled palm branches off the trees by the roadside and waved them to celebrate. There are four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry in the Christian Bible, and the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have a different angle, but each of them tells the story of Palm Sunday. One we heard today from Luke is a little different than the others in that it doesn't have palms, which is a little awkward when you're trying to explain Palm Sunday. And it doesn't record that the crowd said, Hosanna, a Hebrew word of praise, meaning save us. You're going to hear a lot of Hosannas in our music today. What it does have is this little detail of the Pharisees. This was a religious faction that generally opposed Jesus, saying, tell your people to hush up, be quiet. And Jesus says, look, if they were quiet, the stones would cry out. But otherwise, the four stories about Palm Sunday are pretty much the same. Jesus goes into Jerusalem from a nearby hill called the Mount of Olives. He's riding on a donkey. Crowds lay their cloaks and palm branches in front of him. They cheer, saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a big commotion, gets the attention of lots of people. That's what we're commemorating on Palm Sunday. We kind of reenact it with our cheers and our palms. It's a celebration. But what's it mean? Why were they celebrating? And why do we celebrate? So to understand Palm Sunday, what's going on and why it matters, you need some context. And it's helpful that we are about two-thirds of the way through a 20-week preaching series on the whole of the Bible, start to finish. And so we've already spent a lot of time looking at the work of God in history, how humankind broke our relationship with God and how God works throughout history to restore that relationship. We saw that God chose a family and turned it into a nation and that he said this chosen nation, the Israelites, the Jewish people were going to be the way that all of creation was restored. Because through them, God was someday going to bring his Messiah, his anointed one, to be king over Israel, to make everything right. The problem was, the prophets told about the Messiah, and then hundreds of years passed, and the promise felt harder and harder to believe. Because the Israelites wound up being passed like a baton from foreign empire to foreign empire. And for hundreds of years, they waited for the one who was going to come to save. And by the time we get to Jesus... 2,000 years ago, they're ruled by the seemingly all powerful Roman Empire. Now, at this point in the Bible, leading up to Palm Sunday, we've seen Jesus. He's walking around the countryside. He's doing what Jesus does, which is to say, he heals, he's, he's uh, doing miracles, he's casting out demons, he's teaching. He's threatened the religious establishment, he's made a lot of enemies, but he's also gained a ton of followers because word has gotten around. This is the Messiah, this is the Christ. This is the guy that the prophets talked about hundreds of years ago. This Jesus, he's the king of Israel. He's the one who's come to set things right. He's going to lead the rebellion. He's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to kill the emperor and blow up the Death Star, that sort of thing, right? That's, That's what they're thinking. And that's why people are reacting the way they react when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. That's why we get Palm Sunday. Because it's like, finally, The guy who seems like the Messiah, God's anointed, he's been spending his time in the the outlying cities, but now he's come to the capital city, Jerusalem. Now it's going to get real. Now the king's going to reveal himself. And that's what's going on with all the little details of this story that otherwise seem so strange to us 2,000 years and a world away from the story. Like how they take off their cloaks and put them on the ground in front of him. Well, that's what you would have done for royalty, for a really important person, because... The roads were bad, and so it was like making a smooth way. And we shouldn't underestimate the significance of the gesture in a time when people had, you know, five pieces of clothing. Putting down your only jacket for a donkey to walk on is a real sacrifice. And how in the other Gospel accounts of Palm Sunday, they wave palms and they put them on the road too. Well, the palm was a national symbol of Israel. It was was kind of a rebellion flag waved in the face of Rome. And when they cheer, blessed is the one, the king, the come who comes in the name of the Lord, that's a quote from Psalm 118. It's the Psalms, it's the hymn book of the Jewish people. It's what you said to greet a victorious king coming to his rightful city. So the crowd and their word and deeds, they're naming Jesus as king. And Jesus, he doesn't exactly disabuse them of the notion either, does he? Like when the pinch-mouth Pharisees say, you know, tell him to be quiet. He basically says, creation itself is cheering my arrival. The stones would cry out if the people were silent. And that colt that's never been ridden, how he sends his disciples to borrow it for his entry, that's a bit of prophetic theater. It's an allusion to the prophet Zechariah, who wrote more than 500 years before Jesus. Here's what Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. coming to Jerusalem, triumphant and victorious as he, how? Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Zechariah goes on to say, the king will bring peace, and he'll rule from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And these people know their scriptures, so the illusion of what Jesus is doing here isn't lost on them. You can see why they thought the moment is at hand, it's happening. Why they thought the king had finally arrived, and everything was going to get better. That's how Jesus entered into Jerusalem that Sunday. God's anointed, God's hand-picked king, come to conquer the Romans, and by Friday he was dead, killed by the Romans. And everybody who'd cheered his arrival was left as silent as stones, as silent as the rock that covered his tomb. I'm going to tell you a secret. It's not much of a secret. There's hundreds of us here, but I've never liked Palm Sunday. I know I'm supposed to. It's fun, right, with the cheering and the parading and the palms, but I've always found it a little unsettling because Palm Sunday, the way we read it in Scripture and the way we remember it is this perfect example of dramatic irony, dramatic irony is a technique in literature. It's when the reader of a book or the audience of a play knows something about the story that the characters don't know. So they know something is true when the characters think it's false, or vice versa, something like that. So like how in "Frozen," look, all my literary examples in this stage of my life are from Disney. I'm apologize for nothing. In "Frozen," which you all should have seen. In Frozen, we know that the reason Elsa stays away from Anna is because she's afraid of freezing her again. But Anna just thinks she's being cold. (laughs) Anna just thinks it deserved more than that. That was a good joke. Anna just thinks she's being cold for no reason. And dramatic irony is what's happening here in Luke 19. Because we know what happens. We know Jesus will be dead in a week. We know that he'll be raised from the dead three days later. We know that the Roman Empire fell in dust and ashes, and we know that the Church of Christ continues today. But the crowds around Jesus, the ones waving the palms, cheering the King, coming in the name of the Lord, washing their hoof prints out of their best coats, they don't know any of that. And that's not why they're cheering. They're not cheering for the kind of King that Jesus actually is. And that's why Palm Sunday has always felt a little sad to me. Because their joy is so misguided. They're celebrating the wrong thing. They're celebrating the wrong kind of king. Way back in Israel's history, when God first saved them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the land that would be their home, the land where Jerusalem is, way back then, Scripture tells us, that God was their king, and that was supposed to be enough for them, and of course it would be. Why wouldn't it? The God of the universe as your king. What other kind of king do you want? But it wasn't enough for them, and at some point, the people go, and they tell the head prophet Samuel. They say, Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations. It's so horribly sad. Give us a king so we can be like everybody else, and Samuel says, look, you don't know how good you've got it. Let me tell you what kings do. They take your money, They take your sons for their armies, and they take your daughters for servants. That's the price of being ruled. And the people say, yes, yes, that's it exactly. That's what we want, because we could see a king, and we can't see God. Here's the thing about kings, or presidents, or prime ministers, same thing, different name. They take. They take. They take money, and they take life. Taking is what makes a king or a president or a prime minister what they are. And we let them take those things. We let them kill with armies. We let them take with tax collectors. We let them rule with law enforcement because maybe, one, we like the social order they create because we benefit from it. Or maybe we don't, but we can't do anything about it. And listen, I'm not anti-king, I'm not anti-government. There's good politics and there's bad politics. Morally, they're not all the same, so don't hear me saying they are. I just think it's worth remembering the truth about what kings do, all of them. The scriptural truth that even the best law is only a velvet glove on the iron fist of power. And government's about more than power, but when push comes to shove, government is finally about who gets to say where the guns get pointed, who lives and who dies, who's free and who's not. And that's the kind of king the crowds are cheering for on Palm Sunday. They want Jesus to be a king who takes, who takes their young men and drives the Romans into the sea, the Roman young men. They're cheering for the killer they want Jesus to be. And you know what? I get it. I get it, because I'm reading the news, and I'm praying for peace in Ukraine, but I'm not just praying for peace. I'm praying for justice, so my prayers are taking sides. My prayers are for the liberation of the Ukrainian people, which means the eviction of the, Roman, or the Russian aggressor, and that's a violent enterprise. And I have to shake my head at myself, because deep down, we humans love our killers, don't we? As long as it's the right people doing the killing and the right people getting killed. I don't know, maybe not you. I hope not you. But my heart has shadowy corners that I don't like to look in for too long. On Palm Sunday, the crowds are cheering for a king who will kill his enemies. But Jesus, 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 is a king who dies for them instead. He defeats his enemies by dying for them. He conquers them by refusing to hate. He conquers his enemies by loving them. What king has ever been like Jesus? And I want you to know what that means for them and for us. It means that Jesus is the king of freedom. All those other kings, the kings like all the other nations have, they take freedom... They take freedom in exchange for the order and the security they can give. And that's okay, I guess, honestly, for what it is, because the world's a hard place with hard kings, but not Jesus. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is... Is easy and my burden is light. And elsewhere, Scripture says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So, what's this freedom? What difference does it make to your life, to the week ahead of you? It's just this it shows you that another world is possible because the world we live in is ruled by death, by the fear of death. And if it doesn't seem that way, it might just be because the laws are designed for people like you. The world is ruled by fear of death by kings who get to kill. And without Jesus, there's some basis for thinking that the best we can hope for is that the kings, the killers, they have a conscience that they'll govern justly and use their power wisely. And don't get me wrong, I hope that they do. It's better than the alternative. But what Jesus shows us is something entirely new, not just another version of the same kind of king, entirely different. And if you're a first-time visitor here, if you're not a Christian, if you're exploring, or if you've been sitting in this pew your whole life, make no mistakes about the import, the stakes of what it is that we are proclaiming here, of what this week ahead of us, Maundy Thursday, and Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, and Easter, what that means. It is nothing less than the defeat of death. Nothing less. He's the king of a world where death doesn't have the last word. Because that's what he's going to do. He's a king taking his city to die for his enemies. They do the worst they can do to him. That's what the worst that kings can do is kill. They kill him, and he wins. Because he will rise again. The kings of this world, they conquer by death. Everyone by inflicting it. Jesus conquers by death too. He conquers by suffering it, by dying. And this matters to you. I know it does because I talk to you. And I know that whatever we've got going on, you don't have to probe very deep before you see death shadowing each of our lives. I know there are some of you who cannot stand to read the news right now because it brings an overwhelming sense of despair at the death that you see. I know others of you who are grieving because someone is dying far away and you can't get to see them. I know others of you who are afraid of death, afraid of the illness that could overtake you, afraid of that diagnosis. You do not have to dig very deep into anyone's life, every single person sitting here, before you arrive at death. But if you hail this king arriving in Jerusalem, if the palm you wave is shaped like a cross if you know that's his throne, if you know death is his battle plan, the way he triumphs, then I cannot promise you that the world will not be tragic. I cannot promise you it will not hurt. But what we can say is that you do not have to be afraid and that will make all the difference. The threat of death cannot own you. You are free to love. Because the iron bars of this world, this prison ruled by death, are shattered by Jesus, this king coming to his city, and the gates lying there on the ground, because the king of life comes to conquer. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.